Last week we finished Daniel 9, so this week we're going to do Daniel 10. 10 and 11 sort of run together. 11 is kind of a long chapter, and I have no expectation that we're going to get it all done tonight, but we probably will get a start on it, so we probably will break it in the middle. This part of Daniel is what I call the soap opera. It details couple hundred years worth of back and forth stuff between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And it's sort of cryptic, but we have from secular history who the players actually are. They're not listed in Daniel, but they are in secular history. And as I say, you've seen something like the Masterpiece Theater upstairs, downstairs, where you got all the intrigue with the servants and people dealing behind everybody. I mean, that's what this chapter of Daniel is. It could very well serve as a BBC miniseries. So let's go ahead and start. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Another translation of that, which would probably be useful, from the Tanakh, on the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, an oracle was revealed to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. The oracle was true, but it was a great task to understand the prophecy. Understanding came to him through a vision. That's from the Tanakh. Another one says it was in a time of great warfare. English Standard says great conflict. I don't remember what other version I was reading, but it was a time of warfare, great war. Kim Gimme as the time appointed was long. I'm not quite sure what all that is. I will hang in there with the Tanakh. That seems to make sense to me. They're just as authoritative as anybody else, so we use them. I have on the slide in back of me a secular chart of the times of the Persian kings. So the third year of Cyrus would be 556 BC, according to this chart. And charts vary somewhat. And so, for example, down in 485 to 4th, 65 is Xerxes, which is Ahasuerus, which is in the book of Esther. But again, that's all controversial, because in the secular literature, there isn't an Ahasuerus, there's a Xerxes, and they assume that it's the same guy. So anyway, in the third year of Cyrus would then be 556 BC. So I'm now back in English Standard. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So we have the description of this angelic being, and from Revelation, for example, one of the things that you discover is when a human comes into contact with an angelic being, his natural reaction is to lose his knees and go down like a sack of bricks. Do you remember John fell at the feet of an angel and tried to worship him? And the angel grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and says, don't you dare. I'm a created being just like you. I don't get worshipped. So the idea here is you have an angelic being and Daniel is exhibiting 
biblically normal behavior in the presence of such a being. Now, he's fasting and mourning. I don't know what he's mourning for, quite frankly, it doesn't say in here, but it's for three weeks. So he's gone on a modified fast where he's not eating any luxury foods. It doesn't say that he is completely fasting. As I read it, I expect that he's probably doing something like bread and water or something to afflict himself in some way for some reason. He's mourning and I'm not sure why. So anyway, he has a vision and he's standing on the banks of the Tigris, sees this angelic being. So now we're down to verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. The message is for Daniel. It's not for anybody else. However, everybody else knows something is going on that they don't want to be around. So they all split, leaving Daniel alone with, turns out to be Gabriel. So verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. So the way you would describe that is he turned white as a sheet and went down. Verse 9, Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground, which is to say I fainted. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. A couple of things. Thing one is, I am assuming since Gabriel says to him, you humbled yourself before your God. I am assuming that that's what the purpose of the fast might have been. I don't know what his prayers are. It says here, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself for your God. Set your heart to understand what? I don't know the answer to that. Now, given what the prophecy is, you can sort of infer, but scripture doesn't directly say. The other thing to understand is Gabriel here, Gabriel has not identified himself yet, but he will in a minute, says that he was sent as soon as Daniel started to pray. And it took him 21 days to get there because some other angelic beings were resisting him for some reason, specifically in this case the king of Persia. And from that you can infer a number of things. Thing one is when you pray, your prayers are heard immediately. There isn't any intimation here that Daniel's prayer took some length of time to get to the throne room of God. It says, from the day you started to humble yourself and pray, from then I was dispatched. So as soon as the prayer 
went out, the angel was dispatched to answer it. There isn't any delay between you speaking your prayer and the prayer arriving to God. That seems to be reasonably instantaneous. The answer, however, may in fact be delayed. There are three potential answers to a prayer. One, yes, and it starts to happen. Two, no, you don't get that. And then three, wait. This isn't even a wait. This is a yes, I will answer your prayer. But there's now an intervening spiritual battle that happens before the messenger arrives to be able to answer the prayer. And one of the things that shows up in Scripture in a number of places is the idea that there are heavenly beings that have responsibilities on the earth, and they are not all benign. Let's go to Ephesians 3, and I'll pick it up in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So what Paul is saying is there is a mystery that has been hidden by God since before the creation. And it's Paul's privilege as an apostle to reveal that mystery to the Gentile. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is, there is a mystery. And that mystery has been hidden from the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. Not just hidden from men, but hidden from the principalities and powers in heaven or in the spiritual realm. What Paul is doing is telling the Gentiles so that through the church, that mystery may be made known to these principalities and powers. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So, of this age and the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you cross 1 Corinthians 2 with Ephesians 3, and what you discover is that God has had a mystery that he has planned since before the creation. He has kept this mystery from the spiritual rulers of the earth, and you can infer from that that what he's doing is he is dealing with a rebellion. So in a military sense, you don't disclose your plans to the enemy until you execute, and it's too late for them to do anything about it. And the example I use is during the first Gulf War, we had the 4th Infantry Division in the Mediterranean on ships, which forced Saddam Hussein to keep most of his forces in the north while Third Corps came up from the south. Fourth Infantry Division never fired a shot, but because it was on ships up here, Hussein could not afford to concentrate everybody down south where the actual attack was. Common military strategy is you deceive the enemy about what you're going to do. 
what Paul is saying here is the mystery was that by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it was going to be made possible for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. If the principalities and powers had understood what the consequence of the crucifixion was going to be, they never would have done it. And so what I'm saying is these principalities and powers float throughout the Bible. You see them in lots of different places. And biblically, they are completely real. They are not all benign. And what we see in Daniel, where I am now, is that in fact they resist the bringing of a prophecy to Daniel for 21 days until Gabriel finally gets some help from Michael to burn through. And the point is, when you pray, understand that God is not deaf. He hears your prayers as soon as you say them. But there are a myriad of reasons why it may not appear to you that anything happens while you pray. And Daniel, in this case, was fasting and praying for 21 days before he got any response. And I will just flat say, I have actually never had an angel show up to answer one of my prayers. Don't get me wrong, I've had my prayers answered. But never did I have an angel show up to do it. This is a bit unusual. There's stuff that is just mysterious. And it only gets revealed in God's time. So when God decides it's time to reveal a mystery, he does it. And in this case, where we know from other passages of Scripture that he's dealing with a rebellion. You've got Satan that has gone into rebellion and he's taken some number of angels with him in that process. So what God is doing, since he's dealing with a military rebellion in heaven, he is not revealing what his stratagem is until that stratagem is executed and it's too late for them to do anything about it. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength reigns in me and no breath is left in me. Which is to say, I have fainted and the only reason I'm upright is because you're holding on to the scruff of my neck. Verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. He said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Another side bar here. Fear not. Where else do we hear fear not in the Gospels? When the angels appeared to the shepherds at the birth of Yeshua, the shepherds are out in their field and an angel appears to them. And what's the first thing the angel says? Fear not. The signature behavior of someone confronted with an angelic being in Scripture is terror. They go white as a ghost and they go down like a sack of bricks. So the first thing that the angel says about the annunciation of the birth of Messiah is, fear not. If that wasn't necessary, they wouldn't say it. And you see this all throughout the Bible. Gabriel says that to Mary when he asks her if she is willing to bear the Messiah. And notice, by the way, he asks if she is willing to bear the Messiah. He doesn't just sort of sneak in one night and impregnate her on the sly. The angel announces to her, this is what's going to happen, and she says, I accept. Let it be to your maidservant according to your word. 
And she could have said, no way, Jose. In order for the Messiah to be born, the prophecies had to have been spoken, and a woman had to accept the job. Let's pick it up at 18, which is a paragraph in my Bible. One having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So I was going to chunk off into chapter 11, but I'm not sure that's actually a good idea at this point. Let's go ahead and get a fresh shot at 11. And just by way of preface, for those of you who are reading ahead in the book, chapter 11 is an extremely accurate and extremely detailed recounting of the activities between the Seleucids who were kings over the area we now know as Syria going east all the way to India and the Ptolemies who were rulers over Egypt and North Africa and of course the bridge between those two regions is Israel so the reason that this set of prophecies is in here is because it concerns Israel. It will take in a whole lot of royal back and forth stuff. Princesses been given in marriage and assassinations and I mean it's just pot boiler kind of stuff. It also takes in the events of the Maccabees. So toward the end of it Daniel will describe at the level of the conflict between Egypt and Syria, the time of the Maccabees. And it will just go by blip very quickly. And of course, in, in the book of the Maccabees, it takes much longer time. What I will do next time, and by the way, if any of you would like this ahead of time, I'd be happy to ship it to you. I have a Word file that I have reworked where wherever it says the king of the north and the king of the south and all this kind of stuff, I have put in parentheses the name of the king historically at that point. King of the north, this is Antiochus I, married to his sister. His sister is Bernice, divorced his wife, Laodicea. And so I've got all that stuff interposed in a Word document on top of the scripture. If anybody wants that, send me an email and I will be happy to send it to you. But that's actually what I'm going to be reading from next week. And again, I have on the screen up here the players in Daniel chapter 11. And you notice it goes from Ptolemy 1 and Seleucus 1 all the way to Antiochus the 4th and Ptolemy the 6th. So this goes for generations. And it's all in this one chapter of Daniel. And again, if you would like this, I would be happy to email it to you so you can stumble through all this yourselves if you are so moved. As I say, I fondly refer to this as the soap opera. And it's also one of the reasons why scholars don't believe that Daniel was written in the 6th century BC. Because chapter 11 is so accurate 
that they believe it was written after the events of the Maccabees. So what it's doing is recording history as opposed to writing prophecy. That's what most scholars believe. Now, as I said when we started the book, in Matthew 24, Yeshua refers to Daniel the prophet. So as far as I'm concerned, Daniel's a prophet. Red letters in my Bible, Daniel's a prophet. I am simply telling you all this for completeness in case you read commentaries and so forth on it, where they will tell you that this is composed after the fact. Do with that whenever you like.